and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, we are thoroughly into November now, aren't we? It's getting wetter and windier, definitely chillier, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who has given in and popped the heating on at home. Unpopular opinion though, I actually quite like winter in a lot of ways. I love those cold, crisp mornings out riding or walking the dog and those cosy winter evenings. I'm sure I'm not the only one though who has not been enjoying the evenings over the last couple of weeks, what with fireworks weekend and the stress that fireworks can bring to so many animals. We actually escaped down to the depths of Devon over a bonfire night with our dog and enjoyed a firework free weekend out in the middle of nowhere. But for all of you horse owners and dog owners who had no choice but to put up with fireworks, I do hope you all managed to stay safe and calm. Our interview this week is with leading working hunter specialist Kelly Ward. She talks about sourcing star ponies and rebuilding confidence in horses after a blip. Don't be afraid to drop back down. You know, even if you've jumped a few of the bigger courses towards the end of the year and that's where you've had your blip, drop back down because, you know, when your horse has lost its confidence a bit, you definitely can affect the rider too. I'll also be talking to our news desk about some important stories this week, including calls for updated legislation from veterinary professionals and the ongoing work to promote better employment practice in the horse world. Finally, veterinary equine behaviourist Dr Gemma Pearson talks about why horses nap and what she finds to be a contributing factor in the majority of cases. So as a behaviourist, the first thing I want to try and understand is what motivates this behaviour in the horse. And I have to say about 80% of the cases that I see that are nappy have pain as a contributing factor. So we've got plenty to get through today. So button up your show jacket and let's get going. Hello, welcome to this week's Horse and Hound guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone's enjoying the start of the winter break, which I know doesn't always mean rest for for us showing people. I know it can mean, you know, you're out there finding your next prospects of the ring and working on training for the 2023 season because it's not that long away. Yeah, so just under a month ago, um, Horse of the Year show took place at the NEC and what a show it was. Um, We did review the show at the time, but we're actually lucky to be joined by the owner of the 2022 Supreme pony Kelly Ward so she watched her pride and joy her 133 centimetre worker Noble Peppermint and her 10 year old rider Elsie Lynch take the overall supreme pony title which was it's incredible to watch so hi Kelly how are you doing I presume you're still on cloud nine after Hoys <laughs> hi yes uh, yes we still are definitely it'll take a while to get over that one um, but it was fabulous it was a great few days unexpected but fabulous <laughs> Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. And what a little partnership they are. <laughs> yes, they get on really well together. Yeah, they're absolutely fab. And yep, Kelly um, is also one of the leading faces on the worker circuit herself. She's won titles at Horse the Asia World International. She produced and sold horses that have gone on to win those titles, as well as European and championship medals. And Kelly, your daughter Ruby, she's also a bit of a star. Um, she was champion at the Royal International this year with Noble Ronan. And she actually took Peppermint to Hoys and was champion in 2018. Um, so it kind of before she handed the reins over to, to Elsie. So, 
Kelly is definitely the ideal person to give us some tips and tricks on how to make the most of our winter season. Um, so just while we crack on, Kelly, could you just tell us a little bit about Pepper, uh, Noble Peppermint, for those who might not know her? Um, where did you find her? Yeah, where did she come from? She's an Irish pony and I bought her in Ireland. She was a four-year-old just coming forward when I bought her. She had been broken to harness and mm. um, and she'd been lightly backed um, and was owned by a farmer and a friend of mine who I buy horses off sent me a picture uh, of her and then a video of her trotting up the road and said, I've seen a pony, I don't know whether it would be any interest to you. And that one, we went mm-hmm. from there really. So she's um, an Irish pony with no breeding whatsoever. Very blue and white in those days. She's more, <laughs> more grey now. Um, but, you know, uh, she's been a star for us from day one, really. Yeah, fabulous pony. And, yeah, just remind us what that supreme moment was like. Obviously, Elsie and Pepper will have gone in to the pre-judging before. Was that quite nerve-wracking? Because even that, I know it's in the smaller arena, but the atmosphere is so electric, isn't it? Oh, yes, Definitely. I mean, Elsie's never even ridden at Horse of the Year show before. So to go there the first time and first of all, jump clear, then win a class, then take the championship was amazing. So I'm not sure she realised the, well, we didn't put any pressure on her, but I'm not sure she realised how big going into the Supreme was, <laughs> things like that. But we just went with it. But she, um, she's quite a cool cookie. So uh, she did a lovely show, you know, exactly what a working pony should do. Uh, child's pony she was mannerly she was correct she went beautifully and galloped quite a lot (laughs) (laughs) and yeah I don't think I don't think Elsie felt any pressure I think we did watching Elsie's mum Laura and my sister Caroline (laughs) we were the ones that were nervous not Elsie Oh, fabulous. So looking ahead to the next season, I know a lot of people will be, um, as I said, having a break, but a few will be already looking to get out there to get a bit of a head start ahead of next year's Working Hunter circuit. So perhaps you have a young horse in your stable, Kelly, um, and you, you might want to start jumping. How do you know if, if a horse might be ready to take on jumps? Maybe it's done a flat season or it's, you know, you've kind of potted about at home. How, how would you know if a horse is maybe ready to, ready to step up to competitive jumping? Um, I think it's, you know, it goes back to where, where you start with the horse, whatever stage you get the horse at. And, you know, you need to establish the basics really on the flat and then bring mm-hmm. in your pole work and then sort of it's a gradual progression from there. You know, some are easier than others, some take to it quicker than others um but i think you know if you can get the basics in at home and then and then start to you know go out to arena hires and that sort of thing so you take them out elsewhere without any pressure of competition and things you know we're lucky here because we've got a great outdoor school and with lots of different jumps and varieties and Mm -hmm. um so they get lots of mileage here but it's still you still have to take them elsewhere because um they need that mileage and they need to go and just have a look and not be stressed and and sort of learn their trade that way really are there any um exercises um riders could possibly do at home to start introducing them to to jumps i know you've mentioned the poles and things but maybe when you've done your poles and they're confident over over that format is there any key exercises you might start you know, to introduce them to getting a stride and, you know, seeing a few fillers? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're sort of, um, take it quite steadily, but I would say, you know, when you start with your, keep it simple, start with your cross poles, your verticals, oxes, obviously. Um, but then, you know, don't put all your big scary fillers in straight away. You don't mm. want them to, you don't want to terrify them, you know, leave them at the side of the fences and then bring them in gradually and don't go big. You don't need to jump big fences. Don't go too big, too quick. Um, 
grid work, but again, not too imposing so they don't, they're not flummoxed by the whole thing. You want everything mm. they do to be a positive experience and then to enjoy, enjoy their work and what they're doing really. Mm-hmm. And and say you're perhaps working with um this is probably more for the for the parents out there. You might be working with a a young pony and a young rider together. It can get quite get quite tricky, especially mm-hmm. if you're not based with a trainer full time. Is there anything you know that parents could maybe do or exercises they could do to help help a young rider progress with their confidence? Because I know it could, that can be a quite a tricky because again you're not on the pony yourself. You're trying to train the the child yeah. as you will. But is there anything ad- parents could maybe do? Again, I think I think keep it very simple, really. If the child's nervous or the pony's nervous, it can one can create the other, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and I think if you can keep it simple but and keep it positive, you don't want to be end up screaming and shouting at the children because the young pony's you know confused or you know doesn't know what it's doing, and sometimes the child won't either. So I would try and keep it as simple and as straightforward and as posi- positive as possible. Um, again, you know, keeping the, the scary fillers out, just letting the pony learn that it's got to go through the wings and uh, if it sees a fence, it's there to be jumped and just just keep it all, um, you know, very positive. Yeah, and there'll probably be some riders as well who have been uh, contended novices this year and they're looking to step up to the Opens and, and the qualifiers and they are quite meaty tracks, um, both in horses and ponies what kind of differences do you notice between the novices and the opens i know height's one thing but what what other differences do you notice um you've got the height obviously and the width of the fences the technicality the course builders are quite clever you know different lines they'll build different fences you know um oxes to a skinny and things like that Mm. you know the courses do get a lot more tactical than perhaps they used to and I think the transition again you want that to be a positive experience so don't rush a novice straight out of into qualifiers try and do the mm-hmm. restricted and your ordinary opens and get them so they don't even notice that they've made a transition is the the way we try and make it so you mm. sort of you almost let it creep them into a qualifier and they don't know they've jumped one and they've come out yeah. as happy <laughs> it would be when they're in a novice it is the ideal thing really yeah. Do you have any um, particular shows or venues you aim, you know, to go out to at the start of the season that are kind of good for improving confidence? We tend to, there's not as many winter shows, I think, as there used to be, as in mm-hmm. BSPS winter shows for the ponies and the horse worker shows tend to dry up completely. So um, we tend to do arena eventing, show jumping mm-hmm. through the winter. Um, again, arena hires and um as much as we can in that way, we, we're lucky locally. We've got Kelsall Hill, we've got Aintree, uh, Summerford Park's not too far away. And I think all mm. of those places, they've all got different things to offer and they might not be working hunter courses as such, but it's all the education and the mileage of jumping, you know, almost anything and everything um, just helps to, to make the horse or pony really. And there might also be a rider out there who's had a bit of a sticky end to the season with their pony and their horse. Um, is there any anything exercises or things people can do at home if they've, you know, maybe lost the confidence and how can they kind of bring it back ahead of the season? Um, I would say don't be afraid to drop back down. You know, mm. even if you've jumped a few of the bigger courses towards the end of the year and that's where you've had your blitz drop back down and book yourself on some clinics or mm. um, inst- where you would have been maybe going out and jumping 90 metre, you know, metre 10 out at competitions. Say, right, well, we'll go and jump the 80, you know, instead and, and don't be afraid to do that because it, and then build back up. It's never, 
you know, there's no shame in doing it. We've all had to do it. Um, and I think, you know, going going forward, that will help the rider as well as the, the horse because, you know, when your horse has lost its confidence a bit, you definitely can affect the rider too. Yeah, definitely. Again, play around at home and, and jump the smaller fences and yes, yes, push yourself, but don't don't push yourself until what you're doing at that level is, is, is good enough, really. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Kelly, for those super jumping tips. And also in the horse classes, um, part of the assessment or the judging process is the horse has to be ridden by a ride judge. How can riders prepare their horse for a ride judge? Because I know when you're fo- so focused on the jumping, I'm sure sometimes you can forget about that essential part of the process. How do you prepare your horses for the, for the judge to, to get on? Um, yeah, it's certainly something that needs thinking about because sometimes you can arrive at a novice class and think, oh gosh, nobody's ever sat on this one before, <laughs> which isn't very fair on the poor judge. I think, um, again, it's good to get other people to ride your horse, but, you know, obviously um, maybe your instructor, if they, they ride as well, obviously, um, if they can sit on, on the horse maybe halfway through a lesson or if you've got friends that compete and, you know, that can you can sort of swap and change a little bit just to, so the horse has again, good, confident experiences with different riders on because you can get, you know, a judge that's five foot three and then you can get a six foot two judge Mm. and they're all different. And it is some horses don't batter an eyelid and others, it can, you know, it's quite a shock to them, particularly as most of us only ride our own horses, you know, it's uh, most of us, it's just a a one-to-one. So um, I think it is a good idea to do that and just make sure you're putting the right person on really, someone you trust. Mm-hmm. And do you have a favourite working hunter track that you like to jump throughout the season, um, either one of the championships or one of the county circuit or on the county circuit? Um, de- definitely for us, Cheshire County. I think it's a great track. Um, it's obviously our local county show, and it's always a meaty, a meaty track. You, it's not always for the faint-hearted. Um, mm. And Hickstead Royal International, love that course. I think above above all that's that's probably our our favorite really oh super well thank you so much for the that advice kelly um just before we go have you got any um exciting horses or ponies that um, ruby's gonna ride next year you could just tell us about um i've just bought a a very nice novice intermediate i hope and he hasn't even arrived yet i bought him in ireland um a few weeks ago and he he should be here any day actually and then uh, we've got a lovely four-year-old horse worker. None of them are named yet, so I can't even tell you any names. <laughs> um, and I've just bought as well, not for Ruby, obviously, a very nice little novice thirteen-hand pony. Oh, lovely! Which, yeah, there's 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 a few there's a few young ones about, but uh, nothing I can really tell you too much about because I don't really know too much about them yet. So. <laughs> um, but we're always looking for you know the the next ones and. Um, and hoping to, you know, hope we find them and make them do a good job of them, really. Fabulous. Well, we can't wait to follow them next season. And yeah, thank you for taking some time to join us today, Kelly. Thank you. No problem at all. Thank you. Hello, it's Polly Bryan back with you again to have a look at some of the news stories in the horse world this week. I'm joined by senior news writer Becky Murray. Hi, Becky. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm still questioning how we're into November, actually. Um, (laughs) My Shetland ponies have become ridiculously hairy and are obviously getting very prepared for winter. But then when they have their mad moments in the field, they're roasting, so... (laughs) 
<laughs> That's the, the problem. premature. <laughs> oh, bless them. <laughs> we also have our news editor, Eleanor Jones, with us. Hi, Eleanor. What's been going on with you? Well, I, I had a really sad morning this morning because I was having a lovely dream that I'd won £155 million, which is quite <laughs> an, a specific amount to dream. And that in the dream, specific. I was. Yeah. And I was horse shopping in equestrian centre shopping, and then my alarm went off, and I hadn't even won £155. So. <laughs> and it was raining. <laughs> oh, no. Just add insult to injury. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, we've all been there. I think we all know those moments, and we wish we just uh, hadn't woken up from a wonderful dream. <laughs> So, Becky, I'm going to come to you first because you've been working on an important story this week about calls for new legislation concerning veterinary professionals. Um, Please, can you just give us a bit of an overview of what has happened? Yes, well, this is something that the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons have been calling for for a number of years now. They want to see a change to the Veterinary Surgeons Act, which which came into force back in 1966. Now, the RCVS held a public consultation in 2021, which we covered at the time. And now a meeting's actually taken place at the House of Lords with MPs and stakeholders in the veterinary industry. Okay. Lord Trees, who is a vet and former RCVS president, spoke at the meeting and said there's an urgent need for the change and that the, the current act is no longer fit for purpose. But... The RCVS said for new legislation to be passed, it's very much dependent on DEFRA's priorities and the government's overall agenda. And in response to this, DEFRA said it's aware of these views and the benefits of updating the Act, but it's unable to provide a timescale for when reforms might take place. And that's the tricky thing, isn't it? It's all, you know, we know what needs to happen, but it's it's when that might actually come into play. Um, because am I right in saying there's a large section of the veterinary industry that is currently unregulated? That's what the, the professionals are hoping will be changed, isn't it? Yes. So right now there's no regulation for musculoskeletal therapists and people like equine dental technicians, which... The British Equine Veterinary Association says makes it really difficult for horse owners to know who to choose and how qualified these people Mm. are. So the RCVS wants to see new legislation that brings these paraprofessionals under the RCVS umbrella and for there to be a real focus on the vet-led team. Right. Okay. And of course, you know, those areas being unregulated, that does bring a risk of compromised equine welfare in some cases, doesn't it? Yes, Beaver say without set standards and clarity, the welfare of horses could be put at risk. I spoke to the Association of Chartered Physiotherapists in Animal Therapy who attended the meeting and they've highlighted the importance of all parties working together. They believe animals should be provided with the same level of care as is offered within human medicine, where human physios are an integral part of that medical team. Yeah, of course. Well, it's great that that obviously more calls are being made and that we are obviously covering such an important issue. Let's hope it does bring about some of the much needed changes within the industry. Eleanor, coming back to you now, you have been writing this week about the fact that some of the major equestrian governing bodies have joined forces to push for better employment practice in the industry. Is that right? 
Yeah, so the, this is a week we've covered in previous years. The Equestrian Employers Association runs this annual Good Employment Week. And uh, this year, loads of, of different organisations are on board. British Dressage, British Eventing, British Show Jumping, British Equestrian, the, uh, the British Horse Society. And the aim is really to, to make our industry one where good employment is a given. And, and that's what you get. Uh, but, and they just, you know, they want it to be a good place for people to work, which is so important. Yeah, of course. Well, it sounds as though, you know, all the, the real, the, the right people are, are getting involved. Um, we've reported extensively on the staffing crisis in the equine industry, but for anyone who isn't up to speed or maybe doesn't quite know what's going on, can you give us just a quick overview of the problems that are that are arising and have been for a while now? Yeah, so we well, one thing that I suppose sums it up, the British Horse Society uh, did a survey and they published the results in March and they found that um, more than half the vacancies these equestrian employers had been advertising in the past year with an average salary of 24 grand um, were unfilled and this was from everyone, you know, ground workers, grooms, coaches, everyone and, and, and they were saying there was sort of a mismatch between what employers were looking for, which is experience, maybe long hours, working weekends, and evenings hard work and then the workers were looking for other things they wanted to control their hours benefits work-life balance and and there was that and there seems to be this mismatch and that is one of the problems and and obviously recruiting and retaining good staff is key because without that we haven't got an industry of course, of course. And staff are so incredibly important at all the levels, as you've said. I know that you have checked in again for this story with the chief executives of the three Olympic discipline governing bodies. Obviously, it's great that this is a priority for them. Do they think positive change is actually on the cards? Are they feeling quite optimistic? I think so. They were all very pleased to, to be supporting it. And one thing, actually, the Equestrian Employers Association founder, Lucy Catan, said she she does think change is coming and, and we're moving forward. Um, and, and for example, you know, all the governing body chief executives were saying that positive employment experience is essential. And, and the fact that they are all backing it and, and they're working with the Employers Association and other stakeholders, I think is a really, really positive sign and, and things are changing. Good, good. I'm sure a lot of people will be pleased to hear that those steps are in motion. Um, and just lastly, just wanted to touch on something nice and heartwarming for everyone to be able to enjoy this Christmas. Riders and horse lovers will have something they will definitely want to be circling among all the Christmas TV listings this year, <laughs> won't they, Eleanor? <laughs> yeah, it's it's lovely. It's I think most people have hopefully seen Charlie Maxey's book, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. And it, it's just stunning. The pictures are stunning and, and, and it's so beautiful. And they have adapted that uh, for the small screen and that will be on the BBC this Christmas. And do we know who's actually going to be a part of this adaption? Do we know which which actors might be um, voicing some of those some of those parts? Yeah, so so the author Charlie co-directed the film with Peter Bainton and then the voices we've got Tom Hollander is going to voice the mole, Idris Elba the fox, Gabriel Byrne the horse and Jude Coward Nickel the boy. Wow, amazing, good stuff. Well, must make sure that we all uh, find some time in our Christmas schedules to to watch that. It does feel somewhat early to be talking about Christmas yeah. in November, but it'll be here before we know it. It always is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eleanor, and to Becky as well for joining me today on the Horse and Town podcast. See you soon.
Dr. Gemma Pearson is a director of equine behaviour for the Horse Trust. She is a qualified equine veterinary behaviourist who combines her time between seeing clinical behaviour cases at the University of Edinburgh's Equine Hospital and ongoing research on this topic. So on this episode, we're going to talk about the napping horse, or for any American listeners, the balking horse, the horse that refuses to go forwards. So as a behaviourist, the first thing I want to try and understand is what motivates this behaviour in the horse. And I have to say about 80% of the cases that I see that are nappy have pain as a contributing factor. There are often behavioural aspects as well and we need to, you know, put in place a behaviour modification programme for these horses. But actually, pain is really, really common and it's also really under-recognised in horses. Um, I would advise everyone to look at some of the work done by Sue Dyson on the ridden horse pain ethogram um, and looking for, for some of these things in your horses if they're recurring particularly when they go to nap that might indicate that we need to get the vets to look at the horses before we even start to look at the behavioral aspects. But let's assume for a second that there isn't any pain in this horse, the saddle fits well, it's had its teeth done and um, the vets have checked it, we can't find any reason. So why might a horse nap? Well uh, the, the most basic response, napping means that the horse has lost self-carriage for the go forwards response. So when I'm back in a young horse, when I'm training them, I teach them that they, they go forwards off of my leg and eventually off of just a CQ. But then they keep going forwards at the same pace, at the same tempo, same stride length, same direction until I ask them otherwise. So horses that nap have lost self-carriage. And what you'll often see when we watch these horses being ridden is that the rider is often having to keep the horse going with their leg. They're nagging them with their leg. And if you're using your leg pressure and the horse isn't going faster or taking longer steps, then you've habituated the horse to that leg pressure. You've taught them to ignore that amount of leg pressure. So then you may have to use more. And what's quite interesting for me is when these horses are being ridden and I ask the rider to stop using their legs, they often immediately slow down. They don't necessarily stop and spin, but they immediately slow down. So that shows me that there's a deficit in one of the basic responses for these horses. So we'll often work on that. So after kind of self-carriage, obviously this horse is stopping down, is slowing down, sorry, before we want them to. So we have to make sure that the horse goes forward from a leg cue. And I think it's really important that the horse does go forward from a leg cue. People will often say the horse goes forward from my seat or even from a voice cue. But when the horse has just suddenly put the brakes on, they never go forward from the seat or a voice cue. And there's no way of reinforcing that or making that a little bit stronger. I mean, you can shout louder, but I think for the horse, that becomes a different cue. So I always teach horses that I put a very light leg cue on. And as soon as the horse goes to take even a single step forward, we release that leg cue. If I've got a horse that has been habituated to leg pressure, if it's been trained to ignore the leg pressure accidentally, I may even use very gentle whip taps. So I'm, I'll get the riders to take their legs away from the horse's side slightly and just right behind their leg, they just tickle them. Just think about an irritating fly, just a little bit of pressure behind the leg and the millisecond that horse starts to take a step forward, I'll release, we'll get them to stop tapping with the whip and release the pressure. It doesn't matter if the horse stops again. This is, remember, is removal reinforcement or negative reinforcement. The millisecond the horse offers the correct response, you reward it by stopping using the stick. So we'll do that from halt to walk, and then we'll do the same exercise from walk to trot, 
And then we might even do it just using whip taps alone from halt to trot. So you just keep tapping just a little bit harder um, until the horse goes into trot. At this point, the rider has not used any leg whatsoever. And what's really important to say is that the amount of whip taps we use motivates the horse to step forward, but it never induces pain or fear. So it's more about it being an irritating pressure than using, you know, lots of pressure. And what we never do is we never just use the whip once because the horse can't predict that and they can't release it. If you start off with really finger-like tapping on the horse's side and then make it faster and faster and very slightly stronger and it's consistent tapping, the horse can release it by stepping forwards. Then you go back in and use your legs and then you use your leg to ask the horse to move forward. If they don't, you can back it up with a whip tap. But you find these horses always do. As soon as you lose your legs, the horse immediately steps forward. So we've now got a horse which hopefully maintains self-carriage. Um, if the horse doesn't, if they slow down when you, you know, st- take your legs slightly away from the saddle, then you use an increased leg cue to ask the horse to go forwards again until they can maintain that. We've now got a horse that goes forward off of leg cue and it maintains self-carriage for going forwards. And if you think about it, what happens with horses that nap is they normally slow down, stop, and then spin away. And most horses spin left, a little bit like we're right-handed. Most horses will push off of that right forelimb and go to the left. And again, with horses that nap, I'll get riders to ride down the centre line and take both legs away. Hopefully we've sorted that out now. But sometimes they'll drift a little bit, even if they maintain their speed and line. But also, if I ask the riders just to give and retake the reins for two steps, you'll often find that the horses drift. And a lot of them will drift left, so they'll fall out through a shoulder. So this tells me that the rider is using the reins to keep the horse straight. And this means that you're constantly having to use that to maintain straightness. And therefore, when the horse does nap, they just push through that pressure that's already there. So I want to train the horse to maintain straightness by themselves. That is their job. As soon as I ask the horse to go forwards in walk or trot or canter, they need to maintain their speed, their stride length and their straightness until I ask them otherwise. So we'll retrain the horse. Um, initially using the reins that if I open my rein away from the horse's shoulder that the horse will step the foreleg on that side away from the horse's body so we don't want them bending the head and neck because how many horses do you see that you know the horse starts to go left so the rider tries to use the reins to position the horse's head to the right but the shoulders keep going left So what's really important is that if you give a rein cue, you can use that to move the horse's foot away from its body uh, and that initiates a turn response. But at the same size, you know, I've said if I move my right rein away from the horse's body, then the horse steps right. But if I put my left rein against the horse's neck, I also want the horse's shoulders to move to the right and the horse to step to the right. So then when it comes to nappy horses, if the horse does go to slow down, you can just put your leg on they should go forward. If the horse stops and tries to spin, you can use your reins to straighten them because we've retrained that response and then ask them to go forwards. And worst case scenario, if they have spun, stop them, turn them back the same way. People will often say spin them in a full circle. If the horse has stopped and pushed off of its right foreleg and you then continue to spin it round to the right, you are practicing pushing off of that right foreleg more and more and more. So if the horse spins round and is facing the other direction and it's gone, you know, it's pushed off its right foreleg, so it's spun left, I then get them to push off the left foreleg to bring themselves right, to straighten themselves up again, and then ask them to go forward. 
And then finally, think about classical conditioning, as we've mentioned in another episode. So if the horse always naps at one spot, the horse might be thinking, every time I come here, the rider puts me under lots of pressure. So I would almost think of taking the horse towards that spot and halting them and giving them a scratch, making it nice for them. Then just ask for a few steps forward and give them another scratch. Maybe even give them, you know, a small food reward. So rather than trying to force the horse into complying in an area that they may be fearful of, instead, we're trying to set the horse up for success by helping them to be more confident and want to go forward in certain areas. And then I'm just going to finish where I started and say that 80% of horses that I see for napping have pain as an underlying contributing factor. So please do get these things looked into. And just trotting the horse up in a straight line is not going to tell us very much. You need to get, you know, work with your vets to see the horse on the lunge and under saddle is probably the most important thing. So another almost subset of napping that we might consider is the horse that just suddenly stops. The horse is walking forward, perfectly happy. They put the brakes on and sometimes you can even feel the horse's heart beating through the saddle. So we know this horse has very high level of arousal. Um, and the temptation is, you know, to put the leg on to try and get the horse going forward. I'm going to talk to you about a study which was presented years ago now at the International Society for Recreation Science. Um, and what they did was they had horses loose in an arena and they lowered an umbrella into that arena and they watched what the horses did. And the most common thing was the horses would stop and startle and they were monitoring the heart rate in these horses. And it took an average of 13 seconds for that horse's heart rate to start to drop. But in some of them, it took nearly a minute. So I think the temptation is when a horse suddenly stops to just put the pressure on and try and get them to walk forwards again. But what I would say is if they stop that suddenly and you can feel the heart rate and their head's gone up and they've gone really tense, just give them a scratch. Just let them stop for a second. Because at that point in time, they're probably in a, a high state of arousal that they're not capable of learning. And if you just give them a scratch and just let them look and, and have, you know, give them a second to, to think about it. And I will actually get people to count up to 15 or 30 and then quietly ask them to walk on. The horse will often walk on okay then. Whereas if you try and ask them to walk on at the start, the horse is in a freeze response. They initially respond to nothing. The rider puts more pressure on and then they suddenly explode. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you, Gemma. Gemma will be back with us next week to talk about riding strong horses. Our interview next week will be with the one and only Carl Hester. And of course, we'll cover all the week's news as normal. Thank you for joining us on today's Horse and Hound podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.